Welcome to my podcast, In the Know. My series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of no-tell. Welcome to In the Know. This episode I have Muneeb Ali, who's the co-founder of Blockstack, a really pioneering blockchain and networking company that builds on his work at Princeton. We talk about how he got there from where he started in Pakistan and where he thinks the new internet is going. Hey, Munibir. Hey, Munib, it's Amal. How's it going? Welcome to In The Know. Absolutely. It's really a pleasure to uh, meet you. I didn't give you a lot of background on how In The Know works and all that. I'm so glad that you were your game for just going for it. Yeah, I did a quick search and it uh, seemed very interesting. Yeah, that's so great. Usually it's, you know, around 30 minutes and there's a founder story kind of dimension and a through line there. But in particular with Blockstack, I think there's so much to discuss and learn about on blockchain. Yeah, sounds good. You tell me which area you, we should take a deeper dive on. I'm, I'm happy to. Well, Muneeb, let's start with you. I appreciate so much you being on In The Know with me to talk about your story as a founder and former academic, I guess, and um, working in, I think, one of the most advanced and important technology areas of the present age. But I'd be curious to, to just start with you in Princeton, New Jersey, hanging out, trying to get an A. I think my journey started, let me, let me go a little bit further back because it's, um, let me tell you a story, right? So I got interested in computer science for as long as I can remember, but specifically computer networks in my undergrad uh, back in Lahore in Pakistan, where I grew up. There was a book on computer networking by this professor, Larry Peterson. So he's a Princeton professor and he's considered like a god in the computer networking world. I got so interested in how kind of like the internet works and how computer networks and protocols work. I was like, I'm doing my, I'm taking a deep dive. I'm doing my PhD in this. And it is very clear. But the path from there to, you know, there's like no research culture back in Lahore. And yeah, did actually, you do college in Lahore? My family's yeah, yeah, from I'm, India. And I, I wonder, you know, because there's all these like Indian scientists who um, studied in India and they, they maybe did PhDs at MIT or Caltech or whatever. And maybe it's not a straightforward path from even the best university in Pakistan to to Princeton. No, it's not. I'm the, I think I'm the first person ever from my undergrad to get in the PhD program there. And it's also like there's no culture of doing research and publishing it. So the idea of like an undergrad who's publishing research papers to beef, beef up my kind of like profile was kind of interesting. I had to make like bend certain rules, make certain things happen. It's a, it's a story in itself. We'll, we can get into to some other time. But I think what's interesting is that back then, my goal was just to be able to go and work with these kind of like internet legends. Like imagine people who have literally helped build the internet, right? And you're working with them on the latest, greatest research and protocols that they, they're, they're interested in. I never, ever would have imagined that this is actually from last week that Larry Peterson's same book on computer networking, now it's in fifth edition or something, actually includes Blockstack as a thing in the book. <laughs> wow. He's teaching kind of like readers all around the world about it because this is like textbook for like thousands of universities around the world. You made and it to the canon of computer yes, networking. Yes, it's like full circle back that not only, so I actually 
hired some PhD students of Larry Peterson, and uh, our, our team is very kind of like Princeton heavy in terms of the computer scientists, just just because of the initial netbook. And like not only that we work with him, it's kind of like coming back full circle that now the world is learning about what a potential new internet can look like in that same book that I read back in the days. Well, if Peterson's a god, then there's got to be a Peterson's law. I think he's done a, a bunch of things. The preface of that book is by this guy, David Clark. He's an MIT researcher. And his title was, this is an actual title, right? His title was Chief Protocol Architect of the Internet. Like he made that up for himself on LinkedIn? Or? <laughs> no, this is like back in the days where this is like 80s. And his job was he was the chief protocol architect. Like he was designing the protocols. And so we have we've kind of like had discussions with David Clark about what we are doing. And he actually did um he did the like imagine like a really impressive, now fairly old researcher. Imagine him doing a happy dance in a circle when he learned about <laughs> what we we're doing. Like he literally he just finished a talk. We went up to him, introduced ourselves, and told him what we were doing. And he was like, yes, yes, yes. And he, he did a happy dance in a circle and came back, which was like, like Richard Feynman, like a 1960s hippie scientist that had just found a beautiful new toy or a lovely song. So it's like, imagine that I got reminded of this because of um, your comment about there should be a law. So there is this end to end design principle. Like you can look it up on Wikipedia. It's by David Clark. Like he wrote a paper about it. And it, this paper is basically about how to design internet protocols and here's a design principle you follow and later on he kind of evolved his thinking and he was like we got certain things wrong with the original internet and the design principle that we should have followed is this thing called trust to trust design principle i won't get into the details of it it's mostly about basically don't trust anyone in out mm -hmm. in the world like no 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 network you should only be if i'm talking to you like i want to if i want to send you a, a message there should be no trust points in the middle of the network. It's just a communication right. between me and you. Because like the, right. the most basic way of thinking about the internet protocol is it's a fire and forget thing where you just send off, you write the address on the outside of the packet where you want it to go and a zillion different folks are going to touch it on its way, right? Yeah. And right now there are so many parties in the middle that, you know, you're kind of dependent on it, including companies. Like, you know, I'm, if I'm sending you a message on Facebook, like Facebook is reading that message and they are completely responsible for delivering it and whatnot. So how this relates to Blockstack is my PhD thesis, which was on Blockstack, actually takes that theoretical concept of trust to trust design and implements a basic version of the internet following the trust to trust design principle. We went up to David Clark uh, after his talk. It was kind of like him finding out that some crazy grad student, student researchers actually ended up spending years of their lives implementing a design principle that he talked about in theory. So obviously he's going to be happy to see like that being done. And that was the reason for the happy dance. So that's amazing. You're in Lahore. You want to reinvent computer networking. You read the textbook. It doesn't have trust to trust. You want to work on this area of the next generation network. Somehow, some way, you're brilliant enough and clever enough to sneak your way into getting them to invite you. You show up, you do the work on this topic. You follow this theme. And you write a dissertation called, hey, I'm going to start a company called Blockstack. No, there's an important part of the story there. So basically what happened is, like, imagine my biggest dream was to be able to go and I think it was less about the university. It was more about the people. There are people I can, like, name, like, on my fingertips that, yes, I want to work with this person, that person, that person. And then they happen to be at different universities around the world. Princeton was definitely one of them. And imagine that you get exactly what you wanted. 
and then you start discovering how this is not as good as you thought. The image in your mind doesn't map to reality because they're you know, research at universities is bureaucratic. Like you're writing these large National Science Foundation grants and you're oh, kind I've of been like... There. I've been there. I mean, before I did startups and, and, you know, maybe I was kind of fooling around when I was an undergrad and, and in the PhD program at Stanford, I thought the highest and best thing in the world would be to follow my idols into academia. And I think it was a month in to being in Palo Alto that I realized this is not the life I want. Yeah, you, so you discovered it very quickly. <laughs> I, I think for me, it was years in. Mostly like, you know, the first couple of years are you're just meeting the requirements of the grad school program to even really be a full, like true PhD student. And then I start kind of like designing what I want to work on and I discover all these limitations, right? And very quickly, I think there was a shift internally where I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And the impact of like publishing a paper is nothing compared to you actually building this thing in real life and mm. commercializing these research ideas. So sometimes I describe Blockstack as the idea that escaped the lab, right? And that was very much by design. So I met my co-founder there. He was also a Princeton engineer. So I actually took a leave from my program and I was doing a PhD thesis on something completely different, right? Like I never finished that thesis. And it was a very long leave, many years. Uh, we went through Y Combinator. We raised venture capital where, you know, people like Naval Ravikant, who he wrote one of the first checks into the company, he literally described us as a research experiment, right? And that's why he was investing. But it was a very interesting model. You're raising venture capital to effectively go and do cutting-edge computer science research. And then you deploy that technology and you want to commercialize it and take it to the mass market versus like a National Science Foundation grant. And the thesis ended up being like I ended up publishing papers on the R&D we did at the startup. And then wow. the university just let me write a thesis about the same work and graduate anyway. Oh, that's amazing. Naval went to my high school. And so it's part of the small world factor. I think there are so many logos on the Blockstack page of really well-known inner circle type Silicon Valley in New York investors. It's amazing to see what you have been building. And I want to learn more about it. And maybe a way to start is which came first, Blockstack or Bitcoin? So I think it's kind of like they are in parallel. Like we were working on, like imagine the quest for a better, a new internet has been there in the academic research circles for a very long time. In some ways, we were continuing that quest independent of Bitcoin. And Bitcoin happened independent of any work that we have done. And what really where the two roads kind of meet each other is when we realize that blockchains solve some fundamental technical problems that we were looking to solve. And they're a very elegant solution for those problems, right? It's basically how do you bootstrap a network where you are, we don't want to trust anyone. And they solve the exact same problem for payments. And we can do that for broadly the internet. So I think that's where we took a deep dive into blockchains and Bitcoin. This is 2013. Bitcoin is below $100 at that point. So Bitcoin as a sort of bootstrappable trust machine is, in your eyes, a lightning bolt. It's like an invention. Someone figures something out. They like solve a Hilbert problem to borrow from math. Is that how it felt? Yes, absolutely. Like, I think it's one of those things where the more you learn about it, the more you realize the brilliance of it. And it, it's a, it is a feeling I think I was describing to somebody. And the feeling that I was describing was that I've been doing research in computer networks for, let's say, 15 years or something before discovering Bitcoin. And I always felt 
that everything I do feels incremental. That, you know, the Larry Petersons and the David Clarks of the world have invented all the cool things, the new things, going from zero to one, right? We are just incrementally improving that stuff. And mm. discovering Bitcoin was like, this is a new, completely game-changing technology. And whatever you work on feels like what it must have felt like late in the 80s or early 90s when people are working on the original internet. Give me a feeling from the hardcore academic world on where it came from. It's got this feeling like, you remember that, what's his name? The, uh, the, the, that Indian mathematician who wrote some letters to... Yeah, yeah, I know. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, because like the Bitcoin paper appears kind of wholly formed without any antecedents, right? Like you don't see the trail of its authorial development. You can't go back and read like the guy's dissertation or or the papers that were the incremental steps there. It's uh, it's like you know someone working in a patent office in Switzerland sending in a physics paper. Is that it? There's no like you know there's no trail. Yeah, I think it's super interesting how he did it, right? And Or they, it could have been a group of people as well. And I do think that the way it happened, it did, it kind of like did not come from traditional research circles, which the original internet did. Let's say we, uh, Winston Cerf was credited for TCPIP, was a Stanford professor when he wrote the TCPIP paper, right? So when he's talking about these protocols, a lot of people are listening. Whereas Bitcoin appears out of nowhere. I was actually doing, someone asked me on a podcast that when was the first time you discovered Bitcoin? I did an email history search to see when did the term Bitcoin first appeared in my inbox. It was actually a professor at Princeton called Arvind. He was just joining Princeton and he wanted to do some sort of a seminar and Bitcoin was one of the papers we wanted to read. Frankly, as a grad student at that time, the first thing I did was look at where this paper was published and it wasn't published anywhere. It wasn't published at the top conferences. And I was like, ah, do I really want to read this thing? And it's like that. I think it got ignored by a lot of kind of like quote unquote elite researchers for a while because it came out of nowhere. And still faces lots of skepticism, I guess, in the general public. I mean, it went through this life cycle the first few years where it really just felt like a mania. And I think those of us that work in technology understand that blockchain is the innovation, not the currency part of it. And, and I suppose that's the direction you're developing these ideas. Am I right? There are definitely arguments for that. Like I'm more in the camp that the open networks are the innovation and the monetary incentives for which the currency has to exist is a very big part of it. It's kind of like, imagine protocols learning how to pay people in a currency that they just invent and driving human behavior, right? Like do this for the protocol and get paid. And we use those incentives in the BlockSec network as well, like where we incentivize certain parties like miners or developers. We nudge them towards a direction by such currency, cryptocurrency incentives. But let me finish the thought on Bitcoin. So it, basically what it feels like when you read the paper, it does not feel like it's coming from someone who's very deep in a certain domain. Like you definitely don't get the feeling that it, this is someone who's very deep in peer-to-peer -peer systems or very deep in distributed systems, but someone who actually knows just the right amount. But it's possible it's a group of people because they don't get anything wrong and they're very insightful in certain ways. Obviously, I've invented something completely new, but they're also not a case where they're wrong about something fundamental but they don't come off as deep experts either. They're more fox than hedgehog. They have a kind of loosely joined set of expertises rather than being very vertically deep. Well, I suppose it's like the classical academic post these days. You have to be deep. 
I think if you look at Bitcoin, you actually need a skill set in game theory. You need to understand incentive structures. You need to understand distributed systems. You need to understand kind of like economics in a way. Encryption, like the applied cryptography is a big part of it, right? And I do think that this skill set is very unique, like someone who knows enough about these different areas and gets everything right. That's why it's a very, very unique type of paper. Most workspaces today are vying for millennial attention by creating unlimited beer and ping pong tables. Those are all great things to do. Maybe at work, maybe not at work, but it's completely missing the point, which is that our minds are increasingly taken up by bullshit and by media that wants us rather than wants to give to us. And at work, in order to expand our creativity, to focus our minds, there are a number of hacks that we can introduce in addition to beer and ping pong, like meditation, like reading Simon Sinek, Seth Godin. But that all aside, it's really about the space that we occupy. So. If we're in a cluttered space, our mind is often cluttered. That aside, having a space that is diverse as the people are, that is comfortable, that is easily movable, that can be constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed in the same amounts of time, where you're surrounded by other people that are enjoying that type of space is a pretty cool thing. If the workspace can be a definite workspace, but a good workspace, then you're in business. So this podcast is brought to you by Notel. Thanks for listening. So where'd you take it? So talk to me about Blockstack. So there are these parallel lines. You take a left turn and you intersect with blockchain world because it's solving a problem that you've been working to solve. And now you're building and deploying Blockstack. Yes. So I think basically you look at Bitcoin and you're like, they're introducing like true property rights on the internet, something we've never had. Like you own your own Bitcoin address. You own the cryptocurrency on it. You get to spend it on an open netbook. And we're doing it for everything else on the internet. Like you own a universal username, right? Uh, you can use that username anywhere you want. Think of that as a like you, the ID card in your pocket. Like you show it at a, I don't know, a restaurant or bar. You can enter the place, but the card is yours. You keep it. So the website is not an issuing authority. Is that what it yeah. means? Because, you know, there have been efforts for you got your Google login for that. There were Gravatar or some of these other kind of shared services for your your profile picture or something but that depends on google that's like yes. the american yes. government issuing currency and now i have a dollar bill that's my dollar bill but it's only exactly. on, on their authority so everyone at home can just directly create their own username and it has strong property rights so you own it like it's mathematics and cryptography it's you don't have to trust anyone and it's not just a username it's your data everywhere on the internet it is these crypto assets, like imagine games. And right now, when you're playing an online game, you're kind of like on some company's server and the game only exists because it's on a server of a company. Now imagine like actual assets, digital assets in the game that can be transferred from one game to another, that can be traded. This is very interesting that these trading markets are already developing, where as humans, like, you know, even when we were living in tribes, we would start trading very quickly between other tribes. Now imagine the digital world, the internet world, we are introducing property rights. You get your own home, you get your own kind of like assets, and then very quickly people start trading them. That's why you're seeing a lot of trading of cryptocurrencies, but also trading of these new types of digital assets. Like a sticker or my uh, awesome house I built in Minecraft or something. Yeah, it can be anything, right? 
But yeah. those games, they have to play ball with you, right? I mean, so you set up um, this user-generated network, essentially. I, I join your account names network. Maybe I mine, or maybe I buy my way into it or something, and, and now I own my own my own name. Yeah, it's like, I think the domain names come close to it. Like, people mm -hmm. kind of own their domain names directly, but not really, because it depends on the DNS system, which is kind of like a federated network. It's not truly decentralized, but... Imagine if it's completely decentralized like Bitcoin. And imagine what is, you mentioned Naval. What is the worth of Naval's Twitter handle? I think it's a lot. It's, mm -hmm. it's also the, the distribution channels that come with it. Right? So imagine you're a, you're a YouTube star and your account gets cut off by Google. Or it's, it, this happens on Twitter a lot. So it's not just the property, the username or you know whatever asset you're talking about. It's also these distribution channels. So people actually really truly own these distribution channels it's a shift in internet economy like one way to think about this is all these people came online and they became part of these almost like digital nations like facebook is a digital nation of more than a billion people but all these users have no economic upside of being part of this digital nation they have no say in what kind of rules are there that kind of like dictate how they live their digital lives on, online. Right. So to keep an analogy perhaps to Bitcoin, all the different computers that are connected to the Bitcoin network, they just are the Bitcoin network. There isn't a governing authority. The, the compute that they contribute is what gives them whatever share of votes essentially in governing that thing. And so you've got an account names network. Yes, which is a basic uh, layer of it, but right. effectively, and it can be, of course, much richer. But I'm wondering, how do I get to use my account name on Twitter? When's that going to happen? I think Twitter itself now. Now this is becoming serious enough that not only Facebook now has uh, the Libra project where they're trying to create a cryptocurrency and enter this industry. Twitter and Jack Dorsey just announced their. I think it's called Blue Sky, where they are trying to figure out how to implement Twitter as an open decentralized protocol, uh, mm -hmm. like a crypto network. I see, which might be parallel to the let's say, the account name service that you guys have created as a decentralized platform. But I suppose there's certain application creators and things that accept your login. Yeah, like so that. they're now... Uh, so we did heavy R&D early on and then built out kind of like the public infrastructure. So imagine just like the public internet. We had to build a new, different user-owned internet, the public uh, infrastructure for it. And then developers came in and started building applications. Last year, we went from some like 20 applications on the network to now more than 400. And these are all developed by other developers, other startups on top of the network, not, not by us. And it's, it's very interesting because it's kind of like the early internet where people were building websites or services on top of the original internet. And these are the early services or, or apps on top of Blockstack. And it's already fairly like there are email services, like privacy-focused, decentralized emails, messaging apps, blogging platforms photo sharing type apps and then there's an entire new category where you get into these smart contracts and almost like decentralized finance and these different types of trading of crypto assets or a logic at the blockchain layer types of applications that were completely not possible with the previous version of the internet there's a commercial dimension to what you're doing and then there's a technical one the commercial one 
has a lot of parallels to the past age of the internet of if you build a platform that's useful, folks start developing things on that platform. So maybe it's iOS or maybe it's Facebook. App developers start getting a lot of the benefit of, of the tools and the audience that's there. But by showing up, the app developers make the network more powerful. In that past age, there was no promise. There was no sovereignty for the different creators. They could be shut down, as you say, like it happened to my account on Twitter a few years ago. And so the fact that you get yourself on this network, you are, you're like a citizen of the network. I mean, we've been working in this area ourselves at Notel. We work in the real estate area. We run all these offices around the world. And one of the really messy things about the um, real estate business is information in the real estate business is very unreliable. I mean, talk about a trust to trust network. Real estate is not that. You get everybody at every step in the system who wants to exaggerate how big their space is or how good the condition is or how much they paid or how little or whatever. There's just all kinds of lying that is incentivized lying that goes on in the real estate information network. We've launched a project called BIA, which has a lot of this intent. We want a bunch of folks to come together and tell the truth. They will mutually verify inside the platform, but they'll still own their data. They'll have to be paid for the work they've done, either bringing data in or, or verifying data. What do you think about this platform versus network contrast I was giving you and the applicability to other uh, information layers? Yeah, I think it's a great analogy. Like sometimes I use the Android ecosystem analogy because it was open source and there's the core Android operating system. You can view kind of like the BlockSack network as that. Someone had to build the core uh, plumbing, really. And then there are all these developers who are building applications on top. And just like, you know, these developers have their incentives for building applications. The interesting thing about this network is the users also get a share of their ownership, right? So the first 100,000 users of Facebook or anyone who's a user of Facebook never saw any financial upside of being early as a Facebook user. Whereas on this network, there's a big overlap between owning the underlying cryptocurrency and owning assets on the network. Almost like by design, you need to own the underlying cryptocurrency to be able to then purchase assets on the network. And as the network grows, you basically have a potential financial upside, which actually drives a lot of kind of like speculation in the crypto industry as well. But it is, I think it's a big advantage over a traditional Facebook-like model. And Has in, that in happened of, already on your network? Has speculation driven some territory grabbing? Yeah, so I think basically what we did was we are, we are a bit unique as a crypto company, both that, you know, we raise venture capital to do real R&D, like actually build, like it's not easy to build networks like these, right? You see a lot of projects out there where kind of like just throwing ideas in a white paper and making use of a lot of marketing and speculation. But similarly, from a legal and compliance perspective, we also took the route of doing a fully kind of like SEC qualified public offering because we realized that you need to give access to everyone, especially including the U.S., to be able to come in and be early owners on the network, owners of the cryptocurrency. And we don't want to limit this just to accredited measures. But that was the entire process. Like imagine working with the SEC and securities regulations have been around since 1933. And this was the first time ever that the SEC qualified an asset that was a crypto asset and not a traditional equity in a company. And we, we took that route to make sure that our early users also have a potential financial upside if the network um, grows. Hmm. So people own tokens, coins? Yep. So we we got like, I think our first offering got us around like 900 investors. Most of them were like institutional. And uh, then we got around 5,000 investors. This time, most of them were retail. 
and then mm. I think subsequently we we uh, were able to get more than three hundred thousand people to be owners of uh, the stack. So it's called Stacks STX, the cryptocurrency. Interestingly, it trades internationally, but not yet in the U.S. because of regulations. Uh, U.S. is it takes a different approach from SEC perspective. But we are working on potentially opening up these markets. Uh, is it a big and valuable market cap? Is it like a highly liquid we, one? Is it people are in there is. making money? Yeah, it is liquid internationally. And I think currently the market cap is less than 100 million. It's mm. trading at around 77, 80 million, which mm. is like, you know, just looking at our company, we have raised more than $75 million just in capital. So I think we, we think it's still early days. There are other similar projects out there. We're sitting on, you know, 20, 25 billion market caps. Yeah, like the Ethereum project has some parallels, some. Yep. The Ethereum one is where kind of like it's a very different architecture, kind of generally moving towards the same direction of a new type of uh, uh, internet. So what's the way for someone to get involved? I mean, some of the folks who follow in the know are themselves entrepreneurs and building companies. They may not be at a wonky enough level that they'll launch an, an app for your network. Yeah. So I think basically we generally tend to even like hire people who are outside of the traditional crypto industries, same with developers. Like we think that the blue ocean of developers, especially even the high quality engineers and also entrepreneurs, they currently don't work in the crypto industry. And I think the crypto industry, in my view, obviously I'm spending all of my cycles here. This is basically the future of the web. Like this is where web kind of meets traditional crypto. And it's like, there will be no difference between money and information, right? So owning your data or owning Bitcoin or some cryptocurrency would be kind of like the same thing, same technology. And we are, even the example you gave, like if you want to digitize ownership of some of these buildings and you want to enable broad access, like imagine like thousands of people owning kind of like small shares of these buildings, people are already kind of like tokenizing and digitizing these assets on blockchains, trading them and creating liquid markets. That's effectively think of this as looking back, let's say we are, it's been 10 years or so and we look back, we will look at kind of like now as the point where property rights got introduced to the internet, right? And it just changes everything. Once you have property rights, they can be used for, for all sorts of things. What's the time horizon we should be thinking on? The 10-year time horizon? Should I wait eight years to build the Notel app for Blockstack? I think it's a very interesting question. I think our industry in general suffers from a little bit of a over marketing over hyped and speculation right so imagine even four years ago there would be certain projects that would go around and basically be like hey everything's ready for you to like start building now when their underlying foundations can't even take like a million users right i do think that we are moving out of the infrastructure phase of it where the underlying infrastructure now can scale to hundreds of millions of users and we have done a lot of work in this area and we are kind of like in the early developer traction phase we're seeing Developers do interesting things. We're still not seeing very high quality founders and you know people who would apply to YC, for example. Like we want to see more of like that quality of founders coming in and building businesses uh, in the area. And I think that's roughly where we are. You know, it's been really great talking with you and learning a little bit about where we're at in the development of uh, the blockchain utopia, which is just a little bit in the future, it seems like. We're well on our way. No, I'm, I'm, I'm super excited about it. And I think with technology in general, it's like, you know, uh, it feels like it's taking forever and then everything happens suddenly. Yeah, yeah. Things that are more than five years take longer. Things that are 
some well i don't know what's the bill gates line he's like things that you think are just two years away or longer but things that you think are 10 years away are shorter i'm like that yeah yeah you know in the small world department uh waxman has their headquarters at a hotel oh cool we actually looked at hotel office right before we signed our lease here that was oh wow well, that's good it didn't work out did we not do a good job no, I think it was more of a, a location thing for us. We wanted to be in a very particular neighborhood. And at that time, there weren't any options. I think you guys have been growing a lot in the, in the last two years as well. So. Oh, it was two years ago. Yeah, we have 125 buildings in Manhattan now and several hundred around the world. Yeah, I think we should, we should definitely chat more about what a digitized uh, live trading version of some of these buildings looks like. Yeah, on the buy a thing, like we're not yet at the spot where we're going to do fractionalized sale of the, that asset. What we're trying to do is just make the information the tradable because the information is super valuable. It's how you make decisions about the buildings and the buildings are very expensive, but the information itself is valuable. And currently, since everyone lies, it's not reliable. You could pay them to be reliable, improve your decision making. And I think something like one or two percent of the value of the asset class would be recovered. Because that's what gets burned. When you buy or sell a building, you spend about 1% of the value of the building just verifying stuff. Got it. Yeah. Well, there's much more for us to talk about. Thank you so much for uh, making some time to do that core thing. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Hey, listeners. Thanks for subscribing. Or thanks for just tuning in. A special request from me on this podcast that you are growing to love of people telling us how to spread great ideas. Write a review, please. A five-star review spreads the words, and people will follow. Cheers. Thank you.